Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Now, the story goes on, but in verse 7, King Herod calls the wise men privately. So when Herod had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. When did you see that star? And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Herod was lying. The wise men were sincere, but they all knew that ultimately it's all about worship. God bless you. Please be seated. In the book of Matthew, Jesus Christ is depicted in his kingly lineage and nature. Matthew is that Jewish Christian gospel where Matthew quotes copiously of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah to come, that God would become flesh. Jesus comes from the royal lineage of King David of Israel. He's of the seed and offspring of David. So since Matthew kind of presents this side of Jesus, the kingly Messiah of Jewish prophecy, it's appropriate that the story of the wise men would appear in the book of Matthew, that Matthew would tell this story. These rich men, these wise men, would come so far to worship at the manger. We read it in our text, but let's look at it again. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and have come to worship him. Now the wise men said, We have seen his star, not a star. These wise men had knowledge of Judaism and Old Testament prophecies of a Jewish king that would be born to rule the world. These wise men were evidently priests, sages, religious men of some sort who gave wisdom. They were not Jewish. They were Gentiles. They obviously studied the stars, being involved in astronomy and maybe astrology as well. We don't really know where they're from, the Bible just says that they were wise men from the east, east of Jerusalem. Maybe they were from Persia or Arabia or Babylonia. That's what some scholars speculate. Their knowledge of the Messiah that would be born king of the Jews most likely came from Jewish sources, from Jews who had been dispersed outside of Jerusalem, maybe during the Babylonian captivity. Maybe they were part of those thousands and thousands of Jews 
who were scattered over the world and had synagogues in many cities. Those synagogues began, became preaching points in the New Testament. If you had 10 Jewish men, you could form a synagogue in a city. And perhaps the wise men heard about the Messiah from Jews who lived in their neighborhood, or perhaps they traded with them. Well, they saw his star in the east, and they traveled a long journey seeking the one who had been born king of the Jews. Now, they never considered that this king would be born outside of the political system. A king would certainly be born in a palace or a palace hospital. And they're coming to Jerusalem. They're going to find this king. They thought he would be there. And they plan to worship him. Their motive is explained in Matthew 2 and 2, saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and have come to worship him. We haven't come to write an article. We haven't come to do any research. If he's the king of the Jews, we know enough about the Bible that we have come to worship him. Now, throughout history, there have been a lot of earthly kings who have claimed deity and sought worship. But no human being should ever be worshiped. Amen? It doesn't matter if they're a political figure, a sports figure, an entertainment hero, a musician, singer, or an actor. Man at his best is only man. And while men can be applauded for their excellence or greatness or talent or skill, we need to make sure that we never cross the line that we worship a human being, for worship is to God alone. No animal should ever be worshiped. Now you say, no animal? Why would you even say that? Read the Bible. No angel should ever be worshiped. Nothing that has been created by God should ever be worshiped, but our worship should be for the creator alone. Amen. And yet in your Bible, the Bible said that the idols of silver and gold, they are the work of men's hands. That men created these idols and then worship what they created. How absurd to do that. The Bible said they melted images, made two calves. They worshiped the host of heaven, the sun, the moon, and the stars. They worshiped the false god of Molech, the fire god. Now, in the Old Testament, the Bible said that God likens idolatry to spiritual adultery. Idolatry is cheating on God, the only one who deserves our worship. Now, you can think that that's just in the Old Testament where they made idols and worshiped them or worshiped the sun and the moon and the stars or worshiped the king. But the Bible brings us over into the New Testament. And at the end of his first epistle, the beloved John, John the Revelator, John the beloved, John Zebedee, he ended 1 John 5, 21, saying this, little children, New Testament believers, keep yourselves from idols. For an idol doesn't have to be something that you bow down and worship that you make with your hands. 
An idol doesn't have to be something that is in the heavens like the sun and the moon and the stars. But an idol is anything that takes priority in your life over the lordship of Jesus Christ. If it has precedence over Jesus, it is an idol. It is like adultery against God. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. These wise men did not come to Jerusalem to worship Herod. They knew from the Bible that had been shared with them from other Jews that the one who would come would be God in flesh, God incarnate, we would say. That he was Emmanuel, God with us. And even as a child, he was worthy of worship for he was not created. He was a creator of the universe come in flesh. We have come to worship him. It's all about worship. Now, when Herod heard that these wise men had come to worship the one who had been born king of the Jews, inside he lost it. But on the outside, he was very calm, cool, and collected. But Matthew 2 and 3 said he was troubled at their saying. He was really angry that there was competition against him, that there would be a king that would usurp his throne and take over. He was not just king of Palestine, king of all the Jews. That's what the wise men said. This Herod, he is Herod the Great of a family of Herods, of wicked leaders among the Jews. This man, Herod the Great, was one of the most insecure, paranoid people that you will read about in the Bible. So much so that in his insecurity and wanting to hold on to the throne, he had his own sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, executed in 7 BC. He was very sick, but he changed his will regarding his successor three times in a short period of time before he died in about 4 BC, according to history. In 7 BC, just three years earlier, he named Antipater as his sole heir. Then in 5 BC, he drew up a new will, making Antipas the heir. And then five days before Herod died, he named Antipater was executed. He's still there in a dying condition, but he sees this competition of someone else and he kills his own child. And then a final will is drawn up and he makes Archelaus realm, king of the entire realm. So I want you to see that this man, Herod the Great, was paranoid and intimidated by the idea that there is going to be someone born king of the Jews. And he's raging inside with anger, but he's being very diplomatic with the wise men. So he wants to know where this king is born to. He has his own idea of what should be done. So he calls the chief priests, the theologians, the scribes. He gets them together and he asks them, where does the Bible say that this king of the Jews will be born? These religious experts, they would later become bitter enemies of Jesus. They get out their scrolls. They get out their reading glasses. They begin to look through the Bible. 
They should have known this off the top of their head. They find buried in the book of Micah a prophecy, and they come back to Herod with their report. They said, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written of the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the princes of Judah. Out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel, the little town of Bethlehem. That's where the Messiah will be born. Then Herod says, I need to ask you something else. When did you see that star? How old is this king is what's going through his mind. The Bible said he called them privately and inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. Now, we don't know their answer to him, but we can surmise from his actions that they must have told him that this star appeared about two years ago, two years earlier, and we'll see why in a few minutes. So Herod says, this is so good. This is such good news. Here's what I want you guys to do. You've come to worship him. I want you to go find him and worship him. Verse 8 of Matthew chapter 2. The words of Herod sent him to Bethlehem. And he said, go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Herod said, in effect, I can't wait to get my hands on him. Yeah. The wise men, they're innocent. They're naive. They cannot imagine how corrupt Judaism has become, how crooked Herod is. So they go. Herod, he knows that ultimately it is about worship. It's always been about worship. So with instructions found in the Bible, the written word of God, the Old Testament, they depart Herod, they leave Jerusalem, and they start going down the road to Bethlehem. Now, the Bible said in Matthew 2 and 9, when they heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Now, this is intriguing to me at many levels. You know, the wise men left Herod's palace. The star that they had seen in the east must have been there for a while and then went away because it just gave them information that they needed to journey to Jerusalem to find the king. But then they didn't take Herod outside and say, there it is right there. That's the star that led us to Jerusalem. Have you ever tried to follow the precise place a star was pointing? It's very difficult. Well, now the star reappears, but evidently in a more specific form. It guides them down the roads. It's better than ways. Google Maps, Apple Maps. They go to Bethlehem. The star makes a right-hand turn, maybe, and then a left-hand turn. Goes down to that street and past an alley, another right-hand turn, and its star goes and it stops right over a house, and its beams 
are shining. It stands, the Bible says, over the house where the young child was. Now, I don't want to mess up your manger scene, but Jesus is not in a manger. He's not in a barn. He's probably about two years old. He's in a house. Joseph is probably off at work. It's just Mary and Jesus. He's a toddler probably by now. They're there in the house, and the star stops there. Pretty awesome. That's why for years after studying this, I believe that it's clear that the star was a supernatural light. Was it a confluence of stars or meteors or what was it exactly? I don't know what they saw in the east, but I know what they saw when they left Bethlehem. They saw the specific guiding hand of God that took them to the exact place. Now, I want to depart from my regularly scheduled sermon to share an insight about the star. I believe that when that star first appeared, that you could say it is like general revelation. It gives some basic knowledge to these wise men. It doesn't map out the way to Jerusalem. They figure that out themselves. They pack their bags, they gather their treasures, and they make the trek across the desert or wherever to Jerusalem. That is like a general knowledge that comes from God. And I have learned that when God is guiding people to himself, that often he will give them a general idea. It may be something that they see in nature and they say there must be a God. It may be something that they feel in their conscience that tells them there must be a God. It's not enough to save you, but it is enough to search that you can find him. And I want to tell you, if God has been speaking to you, if you feel him talking to you, you need to go after him. You need to find him. You need to go to a place where you can find Jesus Christ. Go to a church. Go to the Bible. You need to search for him diligently. God does that. But then there is special revelation That would be the Bible, the leadership of the Holy Ghost. Once they get to Jerusalem and now they're going to Bethlehem, the star appears. As I said, it is more specific. It is turn by turn instructions. It takes them right to the very house. And you, if you will do what you know to do, God will tell you what you do not know right now. But many people want to know, hey, God, which house is he at? Well, I want to know, God may say, why haven't you done what you already know to do? You want to know the details of my will, but why do you not forgive those that have wronged you? Why do you not turn from your sins and repentance? If you want to know the details, then you need to do what you know to do now. So it will lead you to further light. The Bible said, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him. Fellowship with one another. You do the general. God guides you to the specific. Amen. It doesn't work the other way around. I know God may at times tell you the very details of your life, but I have learned in my life that I need to do what I know to do. And as I walk in truth, that more truth and light is revealed and and it will work that way for you. From the general to the specific and, and now the wise men. Having followed the star, his star, they saw in the east, have now been guided by divine revelation to the very place where Jesus is staying with his family. Now, God can do anything. You believe that? Why did God not appear with the star in the east, get about 10 miles outside of Jerusalem, 
take the 285 bypass around Jerusalem and there would be no Herod. There would be no fallout. They would just know by the star if God can guide them from Jerusalem to the house in Bethlehem, he could have done that without the, without the layover in Jerusalem. But God had a plan, and that plan involved Herod. That plan involved the Jews. You may not understand why guides you, why God may guide you into a place of trouble, but just keep following him. He has a perfect plan. He knows exactly what he's doing. <laughs> Jerusalem, now Bethlehem, and there they are in the house. Verse 11. And when they were come, Matthew 2, 11, and when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. Notice Joseph is not mentioned. He's still alive. They fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These men are priest sages. They're extremely wealthy. They have come a long way. They come into the house where a perhaps two-year-old toddler is there with his mother. But God has guided them supernaturally to this place, and they came for one purpose. They said, we have come to worship him, and worship him they did. They fell down before little child Jesus, and they worshiped him without inhibition or reservation. Those men who were adults, who were wealthy, who were respected, bowed down before almighty God in flesh and humbled themselves before him. Amen. Without reservation, they opened up their gifts of gold, of frankincense, of myrrh, gifts that were fit. For a king, they gave him extravagant gifts. Some people wonder if it was the money from those gifts that allowed Joseph to escape to Egypt and come back. Did it fund this family early on in their life? We do not know. But these wise men gave the very best gifts that they had. In fact, they planned it before they left home. There were no ATMs to get a little cash out. They went to church prepared to give. They planned it before they left the east. They came knowing that when you come before God, you give him everything you have. You give him your worship. You give him your gold. You give him everything you've got. He is worthy. It's all about worship. It's all about worship. Emptied it. Amen. The Bible says after we've made this long journey, we don't know how long they're there, but evidently not very long. They're getting ready to go back and give Herod the report. We found him. We worshiped him. You wanted to go worship him too, so here we are, and here's how you get there. Here's the address. Just go right to this house. But God who always has a plan. The Bible said in Matthew 2 and 12, being warned of God in a dream, that they should not return to Herod. They departed into their own country another way. 
I guess you could say you always leave different than the way you came, right? But it's all about worship. And Jesus Christ alone is worthy of the worship of our lives. Herod, like Satan, coveted the worship that belonged to Jesus Christ alone. And in a rage of jealousy, he demanded and commanded his soldiers to go to Bethlehem and to kill all the children who were two years of age and younger. And he killed them. But Jesus escaped his father, his stepfather, Joseph, being warned in a dream. You see, Herod the Great could not stomach the idea that anyone other than him would take center stage, that would be honored or worshipped. He wanted the glory that belonged to God alone. This arrogance inside of him, this egotistical nature, evidently ran in the family. For his grandson, Herod Antipas, he also wanted all the glory. In Acts chapter 12, the Bible says that he produced a flattering speech and people who were trying to gain his favor. History says that he was arrayed in like a silver garment that glistened in the sun. And when the people heard this oration, just really to flatter him, not because it was true, it might have been a really bad speech like see, chain, run. But, but they said, oh, it is a voice of a God and not a man. And evidently Herod believed it. And the Bible said that God smote him with worms and he yielded up the ghost. And there was a reason for that because he gave not God the glory. When Romans 1 talks about the downfall of man, it says, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. They became vain in their imaginations. They worshiped the creation more than the creator who is blessed forever. I have come today in this Christmas season to encourage all of us not to be distracted by anything from the worship that belongs to God alone. Enjoy your family if you have a family. Enjoy Christmas in any way that you do. But make sure that Jesus Christ is still the Lord of your life. That he is the center of your celebration. That your children know it's not about a guy that flies with reindeer. It's about a God who came to earth. And he is the reason for the season. It is all about worship. Herod's nature, Herod's jealousy is so much like Satan who inspires it. Egotistic nature, egotism. The Bible said that, you know, it's clear there's one Lord and he alone should be worshipped. Here is, here is Lucifer. You know, Satan before his fall. He's a covering cherub. Beautiful angel. Music is in him. He is, he's got it made. Everything except one thing. He's not first. I don't even know if he's second, but he may be, may have been second. And he wants the worship that belongs to God. So much so 
Now, when Jesus entered his ministry at the age of 30, he is carried away in the desert to be tempted of the devil. That the ultimate temptation of Satan was so blatant to Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. Again, the devil taketh him into an exceeding high mountain. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. I believe it's Luke that says in a moment of time. It's like, it's like a little video that runs by the eyes of Jesus. And Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And he looks at Jesus and says, All of these will I give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, Jesus would one day have all the kingdoms of the world, but there's this little thing called the cross between this day in Matthew 4 and that day in Revelation when he is crowned as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So what Satan is saying, hey, Jesus, I know that they say no pain, no gain, but I'm going to give everything that you've ever been promised, but there's not going to be any pain. There'll be no cross. You don't have to humble yourself. All you've got to do is fall down and worship me. That's why I'm saying today that it has always been and always will be about worship. It is about who you worship and what you worship and what you make as first place in your life. I will give it all to you if you will just worship me. Jesus wisely quoted from the Bible. That's what you should do when you're tempted. Don't count on your pedigree, the years you've walked with God. In that moment, don't even count on prayer. Go back to the word that is unchanging and eternal and has power. Then Jesus said unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thy serve. Hey, Satan, it's about worship, and you get none of my worship, but God alone gets it all. There's a connection, by the way, between what you worship and what you serve. Or you will serve who or what you worship. Satan's agenda in robbing God has always been on his mind. He wants to rob God of the, real, the, of the worship that belongs to God alone. And, and with worship comes devotion, comes serving. Isaiah 14, 13. Listen to his arrogance. Speaking of Satan, for you were, you said in your heart, I will ascend unto heaven. Be careful when someone says to you, I will or I will not. The Bible says we shouldn't even say that we're going to go into a city and buy and sell and stay there for a year and get great gain. We should say, if the Lord will, we're going to do this or that. In fact, the Bible says that we're like sheep gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. The essence of sin is not some immoral action. It is not some law you've broken, but it is a nature that says no one will be the Lord of my life. I will worship no one. I want everything to be about me. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation and the sides of the north. I 
will ascend above the height of the clouds. I will be like or equal to the most high. Whoa. Dangerous words indeed. Not content to be the covering cherub. He wanted more. Ezekiel says that he was perfect in all of his ways until iniquity was found in his heart. As long as he was in a place of submission, he was beautiful and useful. But as soon as he got out of his place, as soon as he wanted to be something he was not created to be, it was in that moment that iniquity or rebellion was found in his heart and the devil, the angel became a devil just like that. Jesus said, I saw Satan like lightning fall from heaven. It wasn't a wrestling match between the first and second in command or wherever he was. For God has all power in heaven and in earth. And Satan's power is delegated. And God said, you're gone. And like lightning, he fell. This is the war for worship that began, began in heaven. Evidently, Satan was so convincing that a third of the angels defected with him and followed him in his insurrection that they would not worship God. They would follow Satan in his fall. Here's what I know about human beings. We are creatures of worship. And you will and I will worship something or someone. I may worship money. I may worship my job. I may worship my family. I may worship my time, whatever it is, but I'm a creature of worship. And I've come to remind you today that it always has been. It always will be about worship. And it is so important that we make sure that Jesus is on the throne of our lives, that we have come to worship him and to give him the best gifts that we have. Amen. We are creatures of worship. The first of the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I am a God who delivered you from your past, delivered you from your sins, delivered you from your bondage. Old Testament, Egypt, that type of sin. I am God And look what I've done for you. And because of that, the Lord says in verse 3, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The Bible said in Exodus 34 that he is a jealous God. Now, God is not jealous because he's insecure. If he's hungry, he wouldn't ask you. He doesn't need your praise to be God. It's our privilege and to our benefit to glorify him as God. God is not jealous over his people like an insecure person is jealous. He's jealous like a husband or wife should be over the affection of their spouse. Because he made us. And he saved us. He has a right to exclusive worship and praise from all of his people. He's a jealous God. He will not give his glory to another. And he will not share us with a divided heart. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot have two masters. In the Bible, idolatry is spiritual adultery, as I've already said. In the Old Testament, Nebuchadnezzar sets up an image and makes everybody bow down and worship it. But 
The three Hebrew boys would not. They would not bow. They would not bend. And thrown into the fiery furnace, they would not burn. In Revelation, the Bible says that all the world will wonder at the beast and the image of the beast and the false prophet. And they will wonder and they will worship this beast who has power. They will worship the dragon. But in the end, God will annihilate them. And he alone will be who he's always been, Lord of lords and king of kings. That's why I'm saying to you today that it's always been, always will be about worship. That's why the wise men said, we have come to worship him. And at Christmas time, that's what we should do. Now, worship is not limited to something we do. Like we had a praise team and some of us were worshiping, praising the Lord. But Jesus said, there are some people, they draw near me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They're going through the motions, but they really don't feel it and they really don't mean it. That's not real worship. Worship goes beyond an act of praise. Worship, I learned as a young man, is the total response of man to God. Worship is building my life around the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I come into his presence and I may not bow my knee, but I bow my will to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I bow my heart to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And when your heart is submitted to him, it's easy for praise to come out of your mouth. But when you're not yielded to him, when you're not submitted to him, praise is not easy. Like Herod, you have another agenda and it's all about you. But we have come to worship him. Everybody in this house, people watching online, we are people of worship and we have God as the object of our worship. We worship him alone. Amen. In the word, in the Bible, worship is bowing down like the wise men who fell on their faces before toddler Jesus. As the Bible says in the end of all things, that even wicked Herod and all the ungodly people, and even Lucifer, who said, I will, I will, I will, I will, five I wills. Every knee is going to bow. In that moment, coerced to kneel. Of things in heaven, the angelic beings, of things in earth, in the human realm, the richest and the poorest people on the earth, the most powerful and the most weak, they're going to bow their knees and things under the earth, all of the satanic, everybody that rebelled, everything that rebelled against God way back there in Lucifer's insurrection will all bow their knees and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Well, this world may think we're crazy for making the trip all the way to Jesus and worshiping him. What in the world are you doing? We understand who he is, that he deserves the total affection of our lives, the total response of man to God, that we worship him and we worship him alone. Ultimately, it's all about worship. And at Christmas time, I felt compelled to the Lord to remind us that if the wise men can make their journey to the house to fall down, worship 
Jesus and open up their treasures and generously give it all to him. And who are we to withhold the worship that belongs to God? I hope the next time we hit the first note and the first word is sung of a song that something inside of you would say, this is not just a church service. This is not just a place. I think I'll exclude myself from worship because I really don't feel that good. I got my mind on something else. We're going to make the trip to a place of worship. Amen. We're going to make the mental trip, the emotional trip, and the physical trip, though it be sacrificial, to a place to fall down and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. For ultimately, it is all about Jesus, all about worship. We're eight days away, right, from Christmas. It's going to be a wonderful celebration. But we will not forget why we worship. If today was the day of the birth of Jesus, there's a lot of people in this room that would be like the shepherds running to Bethlehem to find that babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. If today was the birth of Jesus Christ and we were wise men over in the east. Maybe it was that day that they saw his star and started packing their bags and making plans to go all the way to wherever he was to find him, to seek for him, to worship him. That's the heart of the people that I'm preaching to right now. We understand who he is and what he's done for us. And we know that our lives are all about the total response to God. It is all about Worship. Would you stand with me right now, please, if you're able? Praise God. Hallelujah. I want to speak to the stubborn person today. Saying, I'll come to God on my terms. I'll serve him when I feel like it. I get through this little struggle or this season or when I finish having all the fun I've planned to have. I want to appeal to you today to turn from your sins and humble your heart before God. That worship is not on your terms. Worship is on His terms. He is God and you are are not. The Bible said that he gives life and breath in all things. That means in a moment of time, he can take away the breath of life that he breathed into Adam and he became a living soul. I've learned that it doesn't take much for some people to feel like they're just something special. Make a little oration and somebody brags on you and think you're the most talented person in the world. It is the voice of a God and not a man. Be careful. Careful. Don't let people worship you, you know, in whatever way that is. It's like the four and twenty elders around the throne of God. They've kind of earn those crowns, but they take them and they cast them, cast those crowns at his feet. For they know he alone is worthy to receive wisdom and power and honor and glory and blessing. Let's pray right now. Lord Jesus, 
I thank you for the amazing people who are part of Atlanta West, who have shown themselves to be worshipers by their presence here today, by their worship to you as we worshiped you, by the giving of their lives to you and the returning of their gifts of finances to you. I thank you, Lord, for the people in this room who have found a place to serve you in the community, in the church, to make a difference in the lives of us fortunate people, to make a difference in this world, to be ambassadors for you. I thank you for those people now. They are the heart of your church. Today, God, I remind myself, Lord, I remind each of us that it's all about worship. So I open my heart to you today. And I bow my will to you today. Would you do that right now? If you need to repent of sins, do that right now. And if you need something from the Lord, would you make him your Lord first? Instead of asking for something from him, would you give something to him? The fruit of your lips, giving thanks, sacrifice, a praise, the Bible calls it. Would you offer something to him right now? We'll say a final thing before we come and pray to the person who doesn't think you're anything at all. You just are so down on yourself. You almost hate yourself. You feel so unworthy, so unlovable. Well, there's the story of the shepherds for you. There are so many stories in the Bible of people no one would have given a second chance to, but Jesus did, and he is here today for you. So we're going to adore him. We're going to worship him. We're going to give him our entire lives, but we're going to demonstrate that through vocal praise today. Would you gather with me at this altar? Would you see this as your Bethlehem, as your house where the young child is? You've come to worship him. Step out of the aisles. Find a place to worship. If you're able to come to the altar toward the front, why don't you make a move toward God right now? Please leave room in the aisles and come close today so others can come behind you.